This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back, team. It's hour three. We're going to get into a national security deep dive. Time for a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. Joined now by Jay Solomon. He's a reporter at The Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, The Iran Wars, Spy Games, Bank Battles, and the Secret Deals that Reshape the Middle East. Jay, great to have you. Great. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, First, let's talk about this bombing of a uh, Coptic Christian church in Egypt. Killed 25 people on Sunday. Uh, The Islamic State, I believe, has claimed responsibility. That's the latest on this, right? What what, what can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, it just looks like... Egypt is is one of a long line of countries now that have have seen this kind of this Islamic state threat uh metastasize we've seen it obviously in Syria, Iraq, Libya and now uh in Egypt in a, in a much more pronounced um way than it, than it has been in the past normally this most of this violence had been the Islamic State presence had been up in the up in the Sinai near the Israeli border, but these bombings of of Christian churches is just more more of a sign of of how this how this cancer is really spreading in that region. And the the president there, the former general uh, Sisi, is, has really been launching a pretty aggressive uh, campaign against these groups. But they're they're still there and they're still very much active. Yeah, Egypt has been out of the headlines for a while after being obviously one of the the biggest news stories of the Arab Spring, and then afterwards with the various changes in in government. Um, But they still have an active branch of the Islamic State in the Sinai Peninsula. They have uh, terrorist attacks that that are happening there, like this one against the Coptic Church. Uh, It does raise some interesting uh, policy questions about, well, how will this be handled by a Trump administration? I see you've written a piece it says that Egypt is hoping for warmer U.S.-Russia ties because of the implications that will have for counterterrorism, for the counterterrorism fight. Yeah, Egypt, I mean, to, to be honest, too, even back to the Bush administration, Egypt has had a pretty bumpy relationship with Washington over the past 10 years. George W. Bush really was pushing hard for democracy agenda and um, kind of butted heads with then strongman Hosni Mubarak. Uh, ironically, President Obama, when he took power, kind of toned down that that agenda that Obama, that Bush was was presenting itself. But then you had the uprising there in uh, 2011, and first 
uh, an Islamist government took over the Muslim Brotherhood, and then there was essentially a counter movement led by the, the, the current president, Sisi. And that the relations between Washington and, and Cairo have been, have been kind of rocky since then. We suspended, the United States suspended some military assistance to um, General Sisi's government, and it really shows kind of the tensions in the region, because the Egyptian government describes this, you know, really as a counterterrorism threat, that their country is under siege, you know, how can you not be serious about um, helping us support this, this this threat? And they've kind of started, like a lot of countries, as the U.S. has pulled back, have, have looked to Russia as, as a country that can be more sympathetic and less willing to talk about human rights or issues like that. And we've seen a lot more Russian troop um, military exercises with with the Egyptian government. And it's, you know, President-elect Obama has given a pretty mixed message. On the one hand, he says he doesn't want to get involved in nation building or playing much of a, a role in the Middle East. And he's been very critical of the Iraq war. But at the same time, he's he's kind of just tried to define himself as you know, going to fight ISIS. He's willing to ally with the Russians more closely to do it. So I think that's why you see this hopeful kind of message coming out of, of Egypt. And, and that was displayed by, through this interview I did with their foreign minister. Now, you, there's also a piece here where you're one of the co-authors. Senate, uh, this is on the Wall Street Journal, wallstreetjournal.com for everybody listening. Senate joins House in approving extension of Iran sanctions. What's the latest here? Yeah, I mean, there's there's something called the Iran Sanctions Act, which has essentially been in place since more than 10 years. And it, it basically has a, a list of measures the U.S. government can take if they so choose. It doesn't, want to ma- it doesn't mandate it, but it, it puts it out there. And it was the U.S., both the Senate and the House agreed to extend this legislation for another 10 years, which immediately caused the Iranians to go ballistic and say that the U.S. was now in violation of the nuclear agreement that went into effect earlier this year. They promptly announced that they were going to start building uh, nuclear-powered submarines and and other type of naval uh, warships, and that it was going to be fueled by their own um, nuclear power. It was kind of a vague, but this whole episode shows how um, unsolidified the nuclear agreement is after only after a year that it's been in place, and, and President Trump has been pretty critical of it. So it, it, it's another raising another question mark of what's going to happen in that region. What do you expect from a Trump administration going into the nuclear deal? I mean, is it is it going to be too hard for them to just scrap the whole thing? What's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think I I don't get the sense that President Elect Trump is going to want to come in on day one and just tear the deal up. It's there's a lot of diplomatic issues at stake. There's also, even on Iran, there's been a bit of a mixed messaging coming out of the people he's been appointing. Trump's, on the one hand, said he's against the deal, and others has said, you know, why why are we not doing business with Iran when all these other countries are doing it now? And I know the, the, the man he selected to be the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, is not kind of a big supporter of sanctions, but at the same time, a lot of these guys now, and the, his, his, the new Pentagon chief, the, the CIA chief, are extremely hawkish on Iran. I think the more likely scenario is you're going to see the Trump administration really 
push back on Iranian actions in the region and in the Gulf and other countries and, and enforce that nuclear agreement much more vigorously than Obama has. And I think that could breed a crisis because even this, this passage of these new sanctions, it's, it's largely ceremonial and it brought back this type of response. If the U.S. really does start imposing new sanctions on Iran, which some, some in the Trump camp have been talking about, I, I think there, there's a real risk that the, the um, Iranians will escalate and threat, threat to pull out of the deal. As for Rex Tillerson as, as uh, Secretary of State, people keep talking about his Russia ties and the problems posed by his Russia ties. Can you give us some sense of what, is, what are those Russia ties and, and what are some of the deals that he's been involved in that have given everyone, uh, not everyone, but have given people this mo- sort of moment of pause as, uh, as he's been announced as the Secretary of State picked by Trump? I mean, he just did, a, as head of Exxon, he did a lot of, of business deals in, in Russia. He got a big award from Vladimir Putin a few years ago. There's oil fields kind of in way eastern Russia, over, almost above North Korea, called the Sakhalin Fields that Exxon has, has partnered with Russia. Um, there's a company called Rosneft, which the U.S. has sanctioned since the um, annexation of Crimea, sanctioned its CEO, and Tillerson did a lot of business with them. So there's there's just a very kind of deep relationship between uh, Mr. Tillerson and Rush, not just Putin, but also companies that the U.S. have sanctioned in recent years because of the Ukrainian issue. And it, you know, it raises questions as how is he going to kind of disentangle himself? Is he going to be willing to push sanctions against Russia when it would hurt businesses that ExxonMobil is in, even if he kind of takes a step back. So, I mean, he does have, he and Exxon had a lot a lot of business dealings, not just in Russia, but with entities that have been sanctioned by the United States. And it does raise questions like, how is he going to navigate that if he's suddenly in charge of, of a policy with Russia at a time when Russia really is, as we're seeing in Syria right now, kind of defying the, the Western world and, and pursuing its own interests and really pursuing it, it's a, a greater role in the, in the Middle East and, and Eastern Europe. Any, uh, do, do you give any credibility to the, well, he'll put up Tillerson, and if there's too much heat, he's got somebody in the wings that he really wants, or is that too conspiratorial for your, for your I thinking? I think that's too conspiratorial. We've been doing this runaround now for three weeks. I can't imagine after that he hasn't finally said, all right, this is, this is the guy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a bit too much of a kabuki dance. I think he yeah, put him out and there Mitt Romney went on Facebook, and, you know, once it's on Facebook, it's, it's official now. That's kind, of the way, that's kind of the way that works in this day and age. Um, yeah. Just could you get, tell, tell us a little bit about, about your book, The Iran Wars, Spy Games, Bank Battles, and the Secret Deals that Reshaped the Middle East. I mean, what are some of the, the, either the main issues, main revelations that, that you deal with in the book, and, and what will people get out of reading it? You know, it's really like it's a kind of a narrative of the U.S. Iranian conflict since since September 11th. Obviously, U.S. relations with Iran have been bumpy since the revolution there in 1979 and the overthrow of the Shah, who was the closest ally of the U.S. at the time. I think the main takeaways are just how much financial pain the United States inflicted on Iran going from basically 2006 through the nuclear negotiation last year and really raising the issue of did we sort of let them off the hook, you know? Why did we decide to pull back um, pressuring in Iran when the agreement that was eventually reached does basically give Iran an industrial-scale nuclear program eventually in, in 10 years? And it also it raises questions about just how obsessed Obama was with, with the Iran track and 
as you may recall, there was this huge uprising in 2009 uh, called the Green Movement when millions of Iranians took to the streets. And Obama basically did not lend almost any support to the Iranian uprising when he did to the Egyptian one. And I think the book outlines that he had already started to make these overtures to the supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollahs, that we can reach some of agreement. And that impacted his thinking on, on whether to support the, the Green Movement. And I think also Syria as kind of the, the big tragedy of the last decade. You know, he was Iran, he was so engaged in this negotiation with Iran. At the same time, he was talking about enforcing red lines against the Syrian regime, basically punishing them for using chemical weapons. And in the end, he he didn't follow through with any of that. And I, the book really shows that the negotiations, with the communications he was having with the Iranians were basically saying, you know, you can't target the Assad regime, the Syrian regime, as our closest ally. I think those three, those three issues, whether we let them off the hook, did we sacrifice the the democracy movement in Iran, and did we are we basically complicit in what happens in Syria? I think those are probably the three biggest takeaways from the book. One of the questions that I think often comes up when people talk about Iran, and this is going to be essential going forward, so that the Trump administration knows what it's doing. Well, that's an open question in itself, but knows what it's doing in, in dealing with Iran. Will, will come about with what is the real nature of the Iranian regime? I mean, there seems to be quite a spectrum from. You know, a lot of sort of public noise about America and Israel as, you know, great Satan, little Satan, and that's for domestic political consumption. Uh, but really, they're pretty rational actors in their own way to, oh, no, they're they're like end of world, willing to have a nuclear exchange with Israel. The Guardian Council's got a bunch of nut jobs on it. I mean, w- w- from your research and your reading about the Iranian regime, especially post 9-11, where, where do you put them on the spectrum? I mean, it's a, it's a totally split government. I mean, that, that's the real problem. You've got the supreme leader, who's basically the pope and the commander in chief, all wrapped in one, really in charge of that country. And he has this essentially a Praetorian guard called the Revolutionary Guards that are directly under his under his writ and and basically control not just the military and the security forces, but the most of the big companies in that country. And then you have the the president and the foreign minister who are pretty, you know, they come across as pretty rational actors. The foreign minister spent decades in the United States. So it's a very split, split nature. And in the negotiations, the U.S. was very much dealing with this, the more rational actor. But at the end of the day, it's the supreme leader that really calls the shots. And despite the agreement and the hope that it would somehow build better relations, it really hasn't happened yet. I mean, the Iranians are very aggressive now in in what we're seeing in Syria with basically trying to knock out the U.S.-backed rebel groups in, in the northern parts of Syria. They're very active in arming a group in Yemen that's fighting the U.S.-Saudi uh, alliance in, in, in that country. They're still funding Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, these groups in, that are fighting Israel. So, you know, despite the rational talk, there are actual policies in the in the in that region have not changed essentially at all. Yeah, I was going to ask you: Can you point deal. to one place post Iran deal where the Iranians, other for, for putting aside the specifics of the nuclear program for a second, where the Iranians have even had a, a lighter touch uh, in the Middle East and and in their actions vis-a-vis all these different uh, militant groups? Not one. They've probably gotten more aggressive. They certainly have in Syria. They certainly have in Yemen. Uh, so I think, 
yeah, they've, they've basically just continued how they were. And internally, they haven't loosened up at all either. I mean, the, the number of dual national, whether they're Americans or Euro- Europeans that have been arrested in there over the past year has actually grown. Uh, dis- uh, internal dissent has been, continues to be quashed. So I think the concern is you've, you've got an agreement where the Iranians did kind of restrain their program if it works for about a decade, if it, if, if it doesn't, it's less. But the sanctions have been repealed. We've given billions in dollars of cash, and you, and you risk kind of entrenching that hardline element of the government that has shown no sense or desire to, to moderate itself. Jay Solomon is a reporter at The Wall Street Journal. You can read his latest at uh, WSJ.com. And he's also the author of The Iran Wars, Spy Games, Bank Battles, and The Secret Deals That Reshaped the Middle East. Jay Solomon, great to have you. Come back soon. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show. Nick in Arizona, you're a patient man. Thank you for holding. Let's get the rest of your question. What's up? Oh, yeah, so my question or I wanted to get your take on is uh, the, the way we kind of scrupulously observe uh, borders, specifically the AFPAC border, Afghan-Pakistan border, um, which is sort of an imaginary line, the Duran line from 1893, as you know. Um, and we allow it to be a curtain that uh, most of our HBIs tend to hide on the other side of. Um, and why we allow uh, Pakistan to have that kind of uh, freedom when they're ostensibly our ally to uh, harbor the majority of our, our highest threats in that region. Uh, yeah, I mean, Pakistan itself, first of all, your point about the, the Durand line, I mean, the separation between Afghanistan and Pakistan on a map, it doesn't really exist. The Pashtun tribes go right across it, uh, move across it all the time. I've actually seen uh, seen the, you know, the lines of trucks crossing at the various border, uh, various border checkpoints. And there's a lot of activity back and forth, both sort of on unofficial transit routes and unofficially, too. One of the best ways that people get across is using a bunch of donkeys and just going up through the, through the, the mountains. Uh, or not the best ways, one of the oldest ways, I should say. Uh, sure. That's a huge issue because as much as we could get victory in Afghanistan, uh, you, could, you could eliminate all the Taliban from Afghanistan tomorrow, and just based on what's across the border in Pakistan, you, you would have a problem, right? They, they would come back, they would uh, equip and train and, and filter across the border, and that's why we've, it's really not possible to have a, a truly stable Afghanistan, the best you can hope for is an Afga- Afghan government that can sort of continue to win the fight mostly on its own, although the U.S. presence there isn't going away, I think, anytime soon. Uh, as to Pakistan, it's... <laughs> I, I hate giving answers that start with things like, well, it's really complicated, but 
there you know there are elements of the Pakistani government and intelligence services that uh, let's say uh, of the military forget leave leave the ISI out for a second that are willing to work against uh, extremist elements. There are others that work right with right alongside and in favor of the extremist elements and will hide them. And look, all you have to do is think about bin Laden living in a house that's specifically set up to hide him a couple of miles from the Pakistani version of West Point, And you start to really wonder what the heck's what's what the heck's going on over there. Uh, we don't have any good answers. But the other side of it is we don't want the craziest guys with, you know, the hardest, the hard line interpretation, the longest beards to be the ones with their fingers on the nuclear trigger. Right. So, Nick, I don't have an answer other than, yeah, it is. It is a mess and it hasn't gotten less messy, really. It's still very bad yeah, my, over there. As you my know, is that I don't understand why we don't exert more uh, pressure on them based on the shocking amount of USA they receive. Uh, the most nauseating uh, briefing I ever got from a uh, government official was a USAID briefing that talked about the amount of money they put in the Fatah uh, that is branded as coming from the Pakistani government and not even from the U.S. Yeah, I mean, we, we've got levers. Uh, we don't use them particularly effectively, and I'm not sure they're even enough to get the Pakistanis to change their, their uh, actions on this stuff. But, Nick, thank you for your service. Thank you for your call and your patience, my friend. Shields high. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. We've got Tom Rogan on the line now. He is a writer for National Review and also at Opportunity Lives, and he's just a general awesome guy. Tom Rogan, good to have you back, my friend. Thanks a lot, Buck. Good to be with you. Uh, so we've got to talk about a pretty sad topic today, a tragic topic. Uh, we haven't really addressed it before on the show, Tom, so I want you to give us a sort of full up-to-date overview of what's happening because we lost the second or the last uh, two hours of the show yesterday to tech issues. We're gonna, I was going to do a deep dive on Aleppo. Uh, it is a horrible situation over there right now. What is happening in the city of Aleppo as we speak? Yeah, well, the issue is essentially, I think, twofold. Number one, the uh, moderate Sunni rebellion. And there are there are elements of extremists there, but predominantly uh, there were moderate-aligned groups have essentially been localized into an ever-smaller uh, circle, a pocket that is being squeezed on all sides by a mixture of uh, Syrian, Russian, Iranian, and Lebanese uh, forces, or Lebanese Hezbollah. Uh, and then at the secondary point, um, civilians are being, in some cases, uh, just shot down, uh, in other cases bombed, in other cases disappeared, which is to say put into uh, uh, secret prisons from which few ever return uh, as they attempt to, to leave the city. And, and all this is being done, I think, very deliberately uh, on the part of uh, the Assad axis, the Putin axis, uh, to, to, to pummel the rebellion, to try and destroy its moral center of gravity and to also uh, embarrass the United States, to, to throw blood in the face of the United States and then through that to try and destroy American credibility with the Sunni allies who care a lot about this because of Sunnis who are being killed in Aleppo. And there are these videos that I've seen that are put out uh, there on social media. The news sites are covering them, too, 
of civilians in Aleppo who are more or less saying their goodbyes on different social media platforms because they don't expect to survive this bombardment. Yeah, and I think that that shows the the scale of this. But but also, I think the question is, it's like an iceberg, right? There's only 10% of what we see. 90%, if you're surrounded, if the internet is cut, uh, there's... It's a, lim- it's a limited mechanism there to try and get information uh, out, but but this is you know this this is the blitz of Aleppo, and and um, you know it, it's at a humanitarian level it's tragic, but uh, I have to say I, I have some some have been praising Ambassador Powers, the U.S. ambassador to the UN, for her comments last night. Uh, for me, it's crocodile tears. They've known this is going on for two years. They have shown consistent unwillingness to even challenge Russia in the most basic areas. Um, I mean, they make Carter look like George Washington. Um, and so I, I just, I don't, it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's a great stain on the moral conscience of this administration. Yeah, well, that, that's the part of this news story that I think uh, is, is, is not getting very much attention. And that is that this is really uh, showing us what the end results of Obama's policy now, what, five years in in Syria, what we're really dealing with, or four years in, in Syria, what we're really dealing with here, and, and, and the inaction and the dithering and, and the lack of, uh, of leadership. People say those things, they talk about it, and after a while I, I think it starts to sound like just sort of partisan griping to a lot of those who are just going about their day-to-day lives and are just seeing in the news, but there are very real consequences. And I think those consequences are becoming all too apparent for everyone to see in a city like Aleppo. Uh, we have over half a million that have been killed in the Syrian civil war. And now you have the sort of last pocket of resistance at Aleppo, 50,000 people that are trapped in one Eastern portion of the city. And all it is is one big bombing raid away from all those people uh, facing uh, death or, or severe injury. And the Obama administration saying, oh, look how sad this is. Well, you know, we are the lone superpower. We're the most powerful country in the world. The Obama administration has known about this for quite some time. They declared a red line. They said they were going to get the chemical weapons out of Syria. They said they were going to do something about this. And and they haven't. And and I just think that, you know, it's fine if Obama wants to say at least U.S. troops are walking the streets of of homes in Hama and Aleppo. And and it, it is it is certainly worthwhile and right to take credit for that. But then there's the other side of this as well, which is there's a there's something other than just all out invasion of Syria probably could have been done to prevent what we're seeing right now, which is uh, a massacre, a massacre of the Syrian people. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, it is just it, it is a it, it does show exactly. I think that idea you know, we're hearing a lot at the moment about uh, you know the Russians in the election. And, you know, to be sure, though, I think as personally, I think there's a lot of, you know, Concerning uh, elements in that, I mean, you know, Trump won. It's not, you know, the people who say that they, you know, gave created votes. I think are flying on a different planet. But, but look, with the Russians, the you know, rule number one is, and I know you know, you talk to John Schindler a lot about this. It, it, it's credibility. It's about understanding that the Russians value uh, words that are rendered into action. That, that you cannot just simply say something. You have to be able to willing to back it up or don't say it at all. And and this is administration systemically, whether it be hacking, whether it be chemical weapons, uh, whether it be the barrel bombings, the starvation, whether it be the fake dealings in terms of ceasefires in both Syria and Ukraine, uh, they, they continually back off. And of course, Putin is, you know, it, it's the Russian realpolitik, 
the you know the Siberian storm, right? That you just push and push and push until uh, there's a pushback, and it, and it has not happened under this this presidency. And and I think Aleppo is a human metaphor uh, for that failure. Um, and it's credibility matters, and I think it has to be said. You know, you, you note that I think importantly, but that a lot of people say. Well, cr- credibility, you know, it's an amorphous thing that Republicans u- use when they don't understand the niceties of foreign policy. But I, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a bit of a exchange with, uh, I did a piece at National Review talking about the, the, why credibility matters. And I specifically challenged uh, Peter Beinart, who I think had written at The Atlantic. And he was saying that, no, credibility is, a, you know, individual things. States don't look at what the United States does somewhere else in terms of dealing how they're going to deal with the United States. But the functional reality is they do because they see as much as we, you know, as a businessman or whatever, takes uh, a, a signal from what someone has done in their previous interactions. And I mean, this, this is basic stuff that, that you look and you value the weaknesses and strengths of an adversary and you're trying to use those to your advantage. And President Obama's, uh, you know, identity, I think, as a foreign policy leader has been one of uh, incessant malleability and, and to, to Putin, I mean, that's just, that's fuel to the fire. Yeah, the the door has been open here, has been opened, and I think that the Russians have clearly walked through it to take a much more active role in, in the Middle East. I mean, when you see what what really one of the great legacies, and by great, I mean big, I don't mean awesome or cool, but one of the sort of major legacies of of President Obama's foreign policy is going to be that by pulling back and sort of allowing things to take place without more of a of a U.S. role, specifically in Iraq and the Middle East, you've seen very obvious and clear expansions of uh, Russian interventionism and militarism in the Middle East, uh, Iranian interventionism and militarism in the Middle East, and I, I think it's a reminder that you know the left and and the and the democratic party which is now really a sort of uh, just a manifestation ideologically of the left uh, takes this view that if if the US would just back off there's this sort of equilibrium that would fall into place in foreign countries and in international relations and other parts of the world that essentially we muck things up we're the problem and if only we step back then everything would work itself out in a happy way when at a minimum, what happens when the U.S. is less involved is other players take a much more active role in the affairs of third party countries, meaning, you know, we do less in Iraq. The Iranians do a lot more. We do less in Syria. The Russians do a lot more. I mean, there, there is a, a sort of push pull on this that they never seem to recognize it. And th- I think this is one of the great fallacies of leftist thinking on international relations is that if the U.S. only steps back then everything sort of falls into this equilibrium and into place, when in reality it just invites China, Russia, you name it, other countries, to take a much stronger hand, and that hurts U.S. interests and oftentimes the interests of the country we're talking about because I trust us a lot more than I trust the Russians or the Chinese to have the best interests of name your country. Uh, you know, I think that's the reality. Absolutely. I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I've done uh, a piece recently, you know, if I can give myself a shout out there, Tom Rogan, Lebanon, people can Google talking about the way that this happens behind the scenes and that you see the maneuvering in Lebanon by the Iranians. Um, I also have a piece out today talking about Saudi Arabia, the mismanagement there by the administration. And my point with the Saudis, I, I think, is you know, important one, because, look, we're dealing with some very unpleasant regimes, but realism demands that we act in a way that serves our own interests. And I think over the longer term, our values, and, and we're not doing that. 
Uh, and, you know, as you say, around the world where the United States does take this offset, look, I, I grew up as an American abroad, so I'm keenly aware of this. It's very, uh, around the world, there is this populist anti-Americanism, which, of course, the intellectual left uh, embraces, takes as a sign. Did we lose Tom? I can't hear him. Can you hear me? Sorry, there we go, buddy. Come back. What were you saying? Can you hear me back? Yeah. Yeah, okay, sorry, it might be my headphones. Yeah, no, so, I mean, the intellectual left has this idea that because of casual anti-Americanism around the world, uh, we must be to blame for everything, right? They go to Paris, they go to London, they speak to people, and they come back and say, well, let's just take a step back and invest more in multilateral institutions. Listening will help. Listening will change people. But the problem is, unless you practically act, you weaken the people, which are to say the political moderates that you want to support that, you know, behind the scenes in these capitals, whether it be Baghdad or Beirut or, you know, even across Europe, people want the United States to lead uh, with authority because they know absent that others with much more malevolent interests will jump into the gap uh, and do things to dilute uh, their interests and, and, you know, stability. And again, the, the proof, though, of this is without, you know, we can write our conflicting arguments and this is why I think, um, you know, conservatives sort of have the initiative here is that you simply ask people, do you feel the world is a safer place today uh, than it was uh, in 2008 or nine? Um, and and I, I just I don't think many people would say that they do find it safer. And that that comes from something. And I think it comes specifically from the fulfillment of a policy doctrine that believes American absence from the world is conducive both to America and the world in the long term. And I think the very opposite is seen to be true. It's not about reinvading. It's about learning the lessons of, you know, I- Iraq. But, but it's about acting uh, with credibility and strength in a, may that, uh, in a way that is commensurate with what everyone in the world knows, which is the United States is the world's sole superpower. And I think that has been lost because it has not been practiced. Um, you know, you, you have to live up to what you say. I think this president would have done much better if he simply said, you know, I'm an isolationist. I don't really care about the world. Because at least at that point, enemies would have still doubted that that perhaps there was a silent red line somewhere that they might not cross, right? Maybe Russia would have backed off a bit because, you know what, President Obama says he's disinterested in Syria, but hey, maybe on I mean, you're you're totally right. The the worst thing with a bully is if you push me again, I'm going to punch you and the bully pushes you again and you do nothing. That's the worst thing. Exactly. Exactly. The boy who called Wolf, right? Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, anyway. Obama foreign policy is going to be picked apart for decades to come. But I have to say, you know, that that it all hangs on the Iran deal as as flimsy as that is and as flawed as that is tells much of the tale. But but really, I think the sort of epitaph of the foreign policy of this administration is going to be uh, the countless dead and wounded in Syria with what is a U.S. response to any of this? I mean, a, a minimalist bombing campaign against ISIS? Nothing, nothing at all, really, against Assad. When you look at it, I mean, almost nothing. I mean, it's it's uh, it's pretty appalling. Uh, Tom, unfortunately, we're we're at time, man. But uh, everyone should go check out Tom's writing at nationreview.com. dot com. Tom uh, is on Twitter at uh, Tom R tweets, right? Tom R tweets, yeah. Yes, Tom R tweets, and also Opportunity Lives. Tom, my friend, great to have you. Thanks for making time today. Thanks a lot, Buck. Have a good day. Uh, Team, we'll be back to close it out. Stay with me. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network.
You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Team, I think I've come to a pretty important decision. I've been thinking about it a lot recently. Um, and I was thinking it might coincide with the holiday season, that uh, I might make the move around the holidays. But probably it's going to wait until maybe springtime or later. And I have to get a sense of a few things before I can totally pull the trigger on it. But I think it's time for Buck to get his own dog. Been really thinking about this a lot, and and I've kind of settled on I want I want either an English bulldog or an English bulldog mix, and maybe I can go find one that I can rescue somewhere. But um, that's what I'd like to do. I'm thinking English bulldog. John, do you have a favorite kind of dog? What do you like dogs? What's your deal? And we never talked about dogs before. Let me turn on my mic. Yeah, John's uh, turning on his mic. Do you like dogs? Well, I kind of like say mutts. yes because otherwise yeah, people do. are going to think you're weird. No, so, yeah, I do. Okay, I do like dogs. There we um, go. Kind of like mutts. Um, my friend yeah, had like mixed, a, we, we a call ja- them mixed breeds. Check this out. Yes. She had a Jack Russell Corgi mix. It had this huge Jack Russell head and a, a Corgi behind. It was kind of weird. It was a weird look, little dog, but he was very friendly, very nice. A Corgi, a Corgi behind. So that's like, it's like the dog. It's like junk in the trunk, right? It's like big Corgis are big. Yeah. And he had a Jack Russell head and it was huge. It, it was... <laughs> Huh. He was uh, a nice. weird. He was a weird looking dog, but very friendly. Yeah, hey, friendly is all that really matters at the end of the day. But yeah, I'm thinking about. Uh, I'm thinking English bulldog is probably the way I'm gonna end up going. Which I know that people say they have health problems, so maybe a mixed breed English bull would be better. But I think it's time. I need a little. I need a little friend to keep me company here in the uh, in the Freedom Hut. A little furry friend. It'd be kind of fun. Maybe you'll hear him barking during the show. So I've really been thinking about this. If you have any, uh, if any of you know any fantastic English bull breeders, by the way, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Give me a holler. Uh, I think I'm joining Tommy tonight on her show, which would be great. Always fun to hang out with Tommy on the Blaze TV. So if you get a chance, you can tune into that. And uh, other than that, we'll be back live in the Freedom Hut tomorrow. I'm excited we got through three hours of today's show. Of course, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.